whenever someone hands you something that's wrapped. It's like one of the most exciting things ever. There we go. What happens in those next however many seconds it takes you to open that up, and then you unveil this surprise. Oh my gosh, you've got a jersey card. What it's like to open a pack of cards and then be surprised and have their heroes pop up. Oh, we got somebody. Oh wow, Chris Bryant, that's great. Nothing can really like relate to that. People have heroes, people have moments, and we have found a way to commemorate that. Kids have been opening packs of baseball cards in America for over a century. Since the 1800s, collectors have torn through packaging in hopes of finding their hero looking back at them. Cards have lodged themselves into the pop culture canon, even getting their own exhibits among the priceless works of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But what's so important about little pieces of cardboard? Memories in your pocket. America's love affair with the baseball card. This is the narrative. I'm Harry Swartout. Now, baseball cards are good, clean fun, and hold a special place in the hearts of sports fans, children, and the young at heart. But originally, it took two dark spots in American history to give rise to the baseball card. Baseball became popular throughout the nation thanks to the Civil War. At the same time, the popularity of cigarettes became more popular due to the Civil War. Cigarette packs, prepackaged tobacco, was easier to transport, and soldiers took on to this new way of smoking tobacco. And so these two things converged, the popularity of baseball and the popularity of the cigarette. The very first cards that were inserted into cigarette packs were actually produced in the 1880s. And that's when baseball card collecting really took off. That's Alison Rudnick, the curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art's baseball card collection. Early cigarettes came in flimsy, easily crushable packs. Instead of giving consumers broken cigarettes that had been smashed in transit, tobacco companies slipped a piece of cardboard between the roads. Soon, savvy companies began putting branding with celebrity spokespeople on the inserts. Baseball cards were part of this tradition of the trade card that existed for decades before their existence. Trade cards featured not only baseball players, but other kinds of athletes, like boxers and cyclists, as well as actresses, which were also extremely popular. In order to be closer to their favorite baseball stars, children would beg their parents or random smoke shop patrons for their cigarette cards. The tobacco companies began to take notice. Tobacco companies saw baseball cards as kind of an opportunity to sell their brand. And I think that a lot of tobacco companies in the late 19th century tapped into this human instinct for collecting and recognized that if they were to place baseball cards in tobacco packs, that both adults but also children would want the cards and start to collect them. These first cards were much harder to collect than modern baseball cards. They were small, only about two to three inches in either direction. Tobacco stains from the cigarettes smudged the image, and they often had branding for cigarettes on the front along with the player. 
early printing techniques also made for uneven runs, but tobacco companies turned to some new technologies to spruce up their cards. We actually see cards that were printed both using commercial lithographs, but also we see photography. And photography had been invented just a few decades prior, but from the very beginning, tobacco companies knew that some beautiful photographs would really appeal to the public. And so we have examples of beautifully both illustrated cards that are printed using lithography, but also photographically. Unfortunately, early cameras were far from portable and needed finely controlled environments. So baseball photographers had to make do. When looking at the cards, one recognizes that the players are photographed in the photographer's studio, and that's obviously due to the limitations of the medium at that time. Baseball cards continued to evolve in order to become more collectible. Prints became larger, illustrations more colorful, and the cigarette ads moved to the back so as not to obscure the beautiful portraits. Aside from some zealous collectors like Jefferson Burdick, who's responsible for collecting and cataloging the Mets' extensive card collection, most collectors were children. Instead of expecting children to get their tobacco cards secondhand, early candy companies sought to cut out the middleman. By the 1930s, bubblegum cards had become an American staple and helped baseball starve kids through the Great Depression. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, chewing gum sales soared. And some historians think that this is because children who were collecting baseball cards, which they found in chewing gum packets, weren't able to afford to go to live games. And so baseball cards provided this essential link to the game that they couldn't receive otherwise. In the 1940s, baseball cards integrated along with MLB, and black stars like Jackie Robinson or Satchel Paige could be found nestled in packs of gum. The cards themselves had become works of art. Here's Clay Laraski, VP of Product Development at Topps Trading Cards. You know, everything was hand done back then. They actually had photographs that they then colorized, so they weren't using like color photos. There was, there, there was no color photography on baseball cards at that point. And then actually in 1953, um, the, the images on the card are actually paintings. Paintings yielded to color photography in the 1950s. Soon, facsimile signatures and team graphics adorned the front of the cards, while player biographies and stats graced the back. But kids had more on their minds than simply looking at the cards. The things that I did as a kid, like uh, we flipped them and you would try to match the card the guy previously had flipped. And if you kept matching them, they were all yours. Putting them on bike spokes was to make uh, make the noise. It was cool. The things, there was a cool thing called leaners. If, if you flipped a card and it leaned against the wall and you had the other guy came and, uh, and hit it down, he would get double the amount of cards. That's Alex Gray owner of Alex's MVP Cards and Comics on 68th Street and Lexington in Manhattan. Baseball cards were something that everyone had, or could get. And when kids had squirreled away their favorite players and teams, they developed new ways to enjoy the players they had doubles of, or just didn't care about. This also damaged cards, and led to an artificial scarcity of certain cards that didn't feature particularly important players. One of the most popular cards from that set, um, which some people probably won't know this, is that it's card number one, and that's Andy Pafko. He was a fan favorite for the Brooklyn Dodgers, but 
Back in the 1950s, when kids stacked their baseball cards, um, they would wrap a rubber band around them. So card number one was always the most damaged. So to find that card in mint condition is, is pretty tough. Hafco's value illustrated two things. One, that people never knew which cards would be worth money. And two, that while everyone had baseball cards, and two, that while baseball cards were owned by many, few took care of them. Despite their clientele literally throwing cards at the wall, baseball card companies continue to improve the look of their product with collection in mind. Where you get into the, the early 70s where you see action imagery on a trading card, and then as you go into through the 70s and into the 80s, you start to see different technologies used on a trading card. In 1992, card companies made the ultimate change to assist in card collection. For the first time since the turn of the century, baseball cards were not packaged with gum, and instead sold by themselves. The wax wrappers and gum had a habit of staining or smudging the cards. So without the gum, the quality of the cards improved. They also made the switch to printing on higher quality cardstock to improve shelf life. This emphasis on collecting, in addition to the economic boom of the 90s, led to what promised to be a golden age of card collecting. After the break, see what turned the millennium baseball card boom into a bust. This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Swartout. The value of a baseball card isn't manifest. It depends. The most valuable are always of a big player, like Mickey Mantle. One of the most iconic Topps cards is the 1952 Mickey Mantle. The card has to be special in some way, like a rookie card, or coming from a particularly important set. That came from our first set, which is considered his rookie card. Most importantly, the card has to be rare, and not just hard to get in packs rare. There needs to be a reason it's hard to get this card, regardless of how many packs are opened. The card has to have a story. This card was released in a series that not a ton of people purchased because in 1952 we were still kind of testing the market of baseball cards. So what happened was all those cards sat in warehouses for a couple years. They didn't know what to do with them. And Cy Berger, who's considered the father of the modern day trading card, he dumped all the cards into the Atlantic. In the 90s, all of the things that made the 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle card valuable didn't apply. Instead, companies began to mass-produce cards, and collectors began to hoard them. Here's Alex Gregg again. When I did start in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, there was, uh, there was a glut in, in baseball cards. They were overproduced. So many were made. And people had a great interest in collecting cards at that time. And uh, it's unfortunate now that since they made so many of those cards, they're virtually valueless. Not to somebody who wants to save them for because they liked a certain team or player, but because they don't have a, a really great resale value. Despite many of their cards becoming valueless, kids now are more likely to tuck their cards into neat display books instead of between the wheels of their bike. Uh, people are concerned with the condition, how, how uh, sharp the corners are, how well-scented they are. And many people, if they, they happen to get a player that's really a good player and they find that the card is in excellent condition or mint condition, they send it away and have it, uh, have it graded 
and uh, hopefully it comes back with a really high grade which will increase the value of the card. Condition matters when selling to a large and choosy market, which the advent of the internet also provided in the 1990s. Card companies began to realize their cards weren't rare enough, so they came up with ways to manufacture scarcity by inserting memorabilia into the card itself. Now cards are autographed, they have pieces of jersey or a piece of a shoe or a piece of a football or some of them are numbered. And if you pull a card of a uh, very important player, a guy like Trout, and it's numbered and it could be, let's say, a one-on-one, these cards could go for, for thousands of dollars. Pair the 90s glut with a steroid scandal, and the baseball card market got into dire straits. Luckily, the Iron Man of baseball himself helped bail out the market from total collapse. I think uh, we can thank Mr. Ripken for saving the hobby, and um, he got baseball back again to collecting, just like Babe Ruth saved uh, baseball after the Black Sox scandal. Modern cards have decided to go in a different direction. The market still hasn't returned to pre-90s levels, but baseball card companies have scaled back on production to increase card scarcity and embrace new technology to offer cards in different ways. Bunt, or digital trading cards in general in an app, uh, really created a new way for collectors to experience really collecting cards. Obviously, they're not tangible physically, uh, but they appear in your pocket and in, on your phone, and you can take them wherever you go, and mom's never going to throw them out. And so you are always going to be able to access these cards. That's Alex Burse, Apps Community Manager at Tops. Digital cards fix some of the problems posed by traditional cards. They take up no space, they don't get damaged, collectors can trade with friends on the other side of the world, and they're endlessly portable. They're even bringing back the idea that kids can play with their cards. Here's Jeremy Strauser, GM of the digital apps department at Tops. Uh, in our sports apps, you have to own the card to play it, but you can play, um, you play a lineup and you earn points. It's kind of a fantasy scoring system that is live and you can drag your cards in and out of a lineup as the, uh, the game or the match is going on. And unlike, you know, traditional fantasy or even the daily fantasy sports where you have to have, you know, a center, you know, three outfielders, a second baseman, a pitcher, we're pretty freeform on the lineup. You can put nine of the same player in your lineup if you want, if you have nine cards of that player. So, you know, example is, you know, Carlos Correa steps to the plate. I'm gonna put in nine Carlos Correa cards. Each card, the more rare the card is, has a uh, rarity or a scarcity boost to it that, that gives you more points. So it's a, it's a really different way to play along. And we see a lot of our fans that sit and in front of the TV or at the game, kind of dragging their cards in and out of their lineup to, to earn max points. And it's a lot of fun. The only problem with digital cards? Yeah, they don't have the smell either. <laughs> Sadly, we have, I don't think we'll ever figure that out. Collectors missing that new card smell still have some options. Back in the day, kids had to wait an entire year for new card sets. And up until recently, that time had been reduced to roughly every three months. But now, it's nearly instantaneous. Say something impossible happens at a game. Boom. Tops can instantly create a custom card. Malone looking for his first hit of the year. Oh. He drives one! Deep left field! Back goes Upton! Back near the wall! It's out of here! <laughs> Bartolo has done it! 
impossible has happened. Cologne hit a home run after he hit a home run. Um, one of the uh, one of the members of our team was, you know, immediately sent out, you know, kind of a communication to the team. All right, Cologne home run. You know, that that's going to be big. We should think about doing a card. So that gets the wheels in motion. Once the wheels are in motion and once we come to consensus, the entire group, on what cards we're going to do, then we will have our designer go into the database and choose the image from the game that best captures that moment. The image will be chosen, put into the card frame. We'll have an editor that will write up some copy as far as the headline that will go on the front of the card, as well as the back of the card talking about specifically why we're commemorating that through a card. Um, the card will then get submitted to our, our partners at the league and the Players Association for their approval. And then once it's submitted for approval and ready to go, it'll be launched on tops.com and fans will have 24 hours to order. Once that 24 hour period is up, the card is off the site. We'll announce the number that are printed. So we only print the number that are ordered. If it's 100, we'll print 100. If it's 1,000, if it's 10,000, that's the number that we'll print. And once that 24 hour period is over, our production team gets started on printing the cards, um, printing them, cutting them, putting them into packages, and they ship to customers in three to five business days. That's Jeff Heckman, Director of New Product Development at Tops. Three to five days turnarounds are nice, but the most important thing about cards on demand is knowing exactly how many of them are in circulation. Bartolo's home run card set a record for Tops with over 8,000 orders placed. That means there are only 8,000 cards on the market and make sure the scarcity and therefore the card's value remains high. But monetary value is only part of the appeal. It really just gets in the fans. Like, let's say you went to one of the games last night and it was the game in Oakland two nights ago where Chris Davis hit three home runs. That was pretty cool to be at. Now you can get a card of that moment at that game. So you have like another keepsake and collectible to remember that. Baseball cards are memories. Ultimately, it's not the photos or the stats on the back of a little piece of cardboard that have captured the imagination of collectors for over a century. It's the connection to the game, a tiny portal into the world of baseball. When I was six years old, I read the book in my classroom with my class about um, Roberto Clemente. And it's like this amazing story, and then you know he perishes in this airplane, and you're just like, wow. The next day, my mom came home with a Roberto Clemente baseball card. And I'll never ever forget that. When I was a kid, I must have had a thousand Mickey Mantle cards, of which, if I still had, I probably could retire right now. He was my favorite player, and I would trade anybody for a for a Mickey Mantle card. These cards are a valuable insight into American popular culture. They tell the story of you know, American life from the late 19th century through really to the present. Baseball players were heroes to a lot of people and that's something that was true in the 1880s and it's something that's still true today. Those moments I'll never forget, and those are tied to a baseball card.
special thanks for this week's episode goes out to Allison Rudnick and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Alex Gregg and the TOPS team of Alex Burse, Jeremy Strausser, Jeff Heckman, and Clay Lorasky. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate us. Tweet about us using the hashtag SIVaultPresents. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. For more on baseball cards, check out TOPS podcast, TOPS Talk. The Met always has some of Jefferson Burdick's card collection on display, but on June 9th, they are opening an exhibition on the history of baseball in New York. If you want to start your own card collection, you can head to Alex's MVP Cards and Comics at 86 and Lexington in Manhattan. If you like the podcast, subscribe and give us a review. But more importantly, tell a friend. The best way to spread the word is by telling someone you know. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. And as always, for more on baseball cards and all things throwback sports, go to si.com slash vault.